The first reading today is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The second reading is Romans 1, 18 to 25. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they know God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Okay, well, um, it is lovely to see you all. If we haven't met before, my name is Geoffrey Lynn. I'm one of the pastors at Trinity in the City, and I'm here giving today's talk from a seated position. So if you can't see me, just move to a different position. Now, first things first, the injury. I was playing tennis. The most important thing was I was winning, okay? That's all you need to know. Um, but it's an ruptured Achilles tendon, so I'll be on crutches for a while. So unfortunately, I wasn't able to be here last week in person, um, but uh, you saw the first of this series on the doctrine of election, on how God chooses us, and that's what we're up to this week. Um, can I ask you please to grab the outline that you're given as you came in? If you don't have a handout, can you pop your hand out and someone will bring one to you? You will need the outline to make sense of this talk. It'll be complicated otherwise. There's also some blanks to fill in, so make sure you can see an outline. You'll also notice inside there's a copy of this newsletter, which I'd like you to take and put to one side and not read during this talk. Uh, I can still see you. I know I'm not elevated, but I can see you if you're ready. Actually, Jesus can see you. That's the most important thing. So, no, no, just kidding. Um, but you're going to hear a little bit about evangelical students after the talk when Naomi comes and shares a little bit about what God's been doing amongst students on campus. Um, yeah, so if you can have that handout in front of you, that would be great. There we go. Um, you'll see at the top of the handout uh, this short series and what we're covering on this doctrine of election. We're up to the second talk today. Uh, but where I want to start, actually, um, 
is by saying it's great to be back here. A number of you I know already, if we haven't met before, I look forward to meeting you afterwards over coffee. Um, I did want to start by saying, though, that um, my understanding is that there are few things that people hate as much as going to the dentist. Few things people hate as much as going to a dentist. I was talking to some of the students who I work with on campus uh, recently. They were saying that apparently there's even an officially recognised condition called dental anxiety syndrome that apparently three quarters of the population experiences at some point in their life. Now, if you've ever had to make an emergency trip to the dentist, uh, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. When you go, all you want is instant relief. All you want is instant relief. But before the dentist can make things better, they have to properly diagnose the problem. Um, After all, it'd be a bit of a shame if they extracted the wrong tooth. And that means that before you get to the relief, you have to endure all sorts of discomfort in the chair as they poke and prod and try and work out what's causing it. Now, why am I telling you about dental visits? Well, this talk is going to be like an emergency visit to the dentist. Um, I'm promising you there will be relief at the end, but there's going to be some pain before we get there. And that's because you'll see the title of the talk, There is no one righteous, not even one. Last week we saw how God's unfettered sovereignty means that our creator is entitled to do whatever he wants with his creation. Incredibly, he chose to make us to share in his glory, he's worthy of our praise. What we're going to see this week is how our sin has ruined everything. That means that in the end our only hope will be that God intervenes again to set things right. If you look at the handout, you'll see that like last week, I'm going to handle the talk in the same way. I'm going to talk about a big idea firstly, then try and address some of the key questions that it raises before over the page, spend some time in reflecting how we might respond um, so that this is not just academic knowledge but something that changes our lives. Well, let's start then at point one with the big idea, and we're going to begin with the second reading that Jonathan brought to us uh, from Romans chapter one. Uh, you'll see I put part of the passage there on the handout for you. Uh, two, two points to make. Firstly, Paul is saying that the wonder of God's creation proves the existence of God. The wonder of God's creation proves the existence of God. He says his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen from what has been understood from what has been made. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. What Paul is saying is that no one can claim God is unknowable. No one can say, God refuses to reveal himself to me. Paul is saying, every person knows about God from looking at the world that he has made. And yet Paul goes on to say, we have all suppressed the truth so that we're without excuse. In other words, Paul is saying that we have willingly and willfully ignored our knowledge of God. We have turned a blind eye to our creator. We're all involved in a cover-up. 
and all of us by default stand guilty before God. And that means that if someone asks you, can you find God from his creation? Can you see the existence of God from looking at the world? The answer is yes, in theory, but actually no in practice. And that's, of course, why evangelism that tries to extol the marvels of scientific discovery as if to prove the existence of God, well, it's great, but it's insufficient. At best, it could lead us to a theism when what we want to do is lead people to Christ. Okay, that's the first idea. The second comes from verses 21 through 25. This is the second reading there. Not only have we rejected our maker, Paul goes on to say, not only have we failed to glorify God or give thanks to him, we've even filled that void with something else. Paul says we worship and serve created things rather than the creator who should be forever praised. So pick it up in verse 21. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. What Paul is saying is that everyone worships something. Everyone worships something. That's the way God has made us. He has made us so that we are drawn to give our lives in service of something or someone, even if that thing is ourselves. But because everyone worships something, the risk for us is that we end up worshipping the creation rather than the creator. The word that the Bible uses for that is idolatry. I just want to stop and observe for a moment that the reason why idolatry is so tempting and so easy, particularly for us here in Adelaide, is because people only worship good things, and quite frankly, life in South Australia is full of all the best things in the world, is it not? Just stop for a moment and reflect on how fortunate and blessed we are. We have the magic weather of spring at this time of year, As you know, in Adelaide, we have food and wine on tap. Uh, We have weekly festivals, or at least we did once upon a time, and we will soon enough again. You can afford to buy a house here, unlike in other parts of Australia. You don't have to spend all your time driving to it because there's no traffic. And, of course, no coronavirus. The biggest thing, of course, about South Australia and what sets us apart from virtually everywhere else in our country is, as we all know, there are no convicts either. Uh, Many of us here have come from elsewhere. Wendy and I did. We moved here from New South Wales a number of years ago. When people find out that we're from New South Wales, they still remind us we're all free settlers here. I smile benignly at them and then usually say something like, there's a good chance my ancestors weren't on the first fleet either. (laughs) Romans chapter 1 is telling us that our knowledge of God of creation, instead of enabling us to live rightly in his world... It actually only serves to condemn us. And as a result, we reap the consequences of our actions. You see that actually in that video that was on screen just a moment ago. There were two really powerful images there to describe what sin is. Uh, One, do you remember? Sin is cutting yourself off from the source of life. It means you're bound to die. You're like a device that has no charger. Might look okay now, but it's not going to last. 
But more than just disobeying God's commands, sin is described ultimately as ingratitude, as betrayal of the one who has lavished so much on us. That phrase, you cheated on me, it's meant to describe how we have treated the one who has given us so much. So, with that in mind, here's the big idea for today's talk and the blank for you to fill in there near the end of point one. If God treated us fairly as we deserve, then, here's the blank, no one would be saved. If God treated us fairly as we deserve, no one would be saved. Well, is there any hope? Or is this all just doom and gloom? Well, uh, remember the trip to the dentist? Yes, there is. There is going to be relief. But before we get there, we're going to need to just dig around a little bit to see how bad the problem is, to see how corrupt we are. Uh, I want to say this part will hurt, but the consolation is that relief will be even sweeter if we grasp how bleak our situation is. So come with me to point two then. Some questions to consider. First question there on your handout, are we really that bad? Are we really that bad? By which I mean, if you've been following along, what you're really thinking, am I really that bad? Because other people might be, but what about me? Well, what we're going to see is, yes, you are. Uh, Actually, yes, we all are. And to make that case, I want to introduce us to two key theological terms uh, that I've printed there on your handout. Now, the reason I'm doing this, as I said last week, is so that if you go and read more on the topic, you'll understand what uh, Christian writers and theologians are describing. The first term there, the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of original sin. Now, what this says is that because of Adam's disobedience... And because you and I are descended from Adam, you and I, we are born into sin. Because of Adam's disobedience, you and I are born into sin. It is part of what we call human nature. And that's because even though our loving God didn't originally make us sinful, you and I don't live in a Genesis 1 and 2 paradise. We live in the broken mess of Genesis 3. Take a look at Romans 5, verse 12, printed near the bottom of the first page. Just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. This is the doctrine of original sin. Well, there's countless works of fiction that portray this inconvenient truth about humanity. Uh, Perhaps the most famous of these books uh, is the 1954 classic, The Lord of the Flies. The Lord of the Flies, and I can see from some of the smiles on your faces that uh, you know this book or at least have read it. Uh, This is a book that tries to describe what happens when a bunch of English schoolboys are stranded on a a desert island, kind of sort of like a precursor to Survivor. Um, And you see the very worst in humanity, uh, even amongst children. Of course, the thing about fiction is that in the end, it's just a mirror for real life. 
Um, so I thought I'd tell you instead a different story, which is about what happened in Canada when the police went on strike. Now, this is an episode that took place in Montreal. Now, let me ask, is anyone here from Montreal or ever been to Montreal? From Montreal? No, great. I can say whatever I want. That's the main thing. Montreal, as I understand, is just a, it's just a sleepy country town. It's a bit like Adelaide. Um, oh, there's no convicts there. Um, so normally a pretty safe place, right? Listen to what happened. Um, this is the account of what happened at 8 a.m. on October 17, 1969, when the Montreal police went on strike. By 11am, the first bank had been robbed. By noon, most downtown stores had closed because of looting. By 2pm, taxi drivers had burned down the garage of a rival limousine service. A rooftop sniper had shot a provincial police officer. Rioters had broken into several hotels and restaurants and a doctor had killed a burglar in his suburban home. By 5pm, six banks had been robbed, 100 shops had been looted, 12 fires had been set, 40 loads of car, car loads of storefront glass had been broken, $3 million in property damage had been inflicted before the city authorities had to relent and call in the army and the Mounties. Now, hang on, Jeff, I hear you say, the doctrine of original sin, that we're all born that way, That's unfair. I mean, I wasn't there in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Why am I being punished for what they did? Well, the answer that the Bible consistently gives is that if you and I had been there in the Garden, we'd have done the same. We are no different. At heart... I am just as bad as anyone else. And the way in which I often try to explain that to the students I work with is that I say to them that the only thing that stops me from becoming a dictatorial megalomaniac is opportunity. If I had the chance, I'd take it. Now, as an aside, this is Romans 1's answer to why do bad things happen to good people? The answer that Romans 1 gives is that none of us are good. All of us have rejected our loving creator. And that means that as a race, we are reaping the consequences of what we have sown. Global suffering now, one day, having to answer to our maker for our betrayal. Well, once again, he's saying, oh, Jeff, come on, you're such a pessimist. Surely there's a possibility that over time we'll make better choices as a race, that over time we could return to our maker of our own volition? Fair question. Let me introduce you to doctrine number two over the page. Doctrine number two, the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of total total depravity. Now I want to say that the doctrine of total depravity is often misunderstood, um, even amongst Christians. So let me be crystal clear. Total depravity doesn't mean I am the worst I could possibly be all the time. That's not what it means. Total depravity means... 
every part of me is corrupt in some way. Again, don't mishear me. I am not saying there is no good in people. I'm not saying there is no good in people. Of course there must be. There must be good in people. We have been made in the image of God, even if we are marred and disfigured by our sin. What I am saying is that every part of us is broken in some way by our sin. And that means that no amount of self-help or self-improvement can ever lead us back to God or fully rehabilitate our broken world. Because, and I think actually we know this from our own experience, even the most noble of actions is tinged with impure motive. Even the most noble thing you do is still tinged with impure motive. Uh, Or to put it in terms of a language that is part of this series, even if we have a thing called free will, Romans 1 has told us we always use that free will to turn away from God, to suppress the truth, to be involved in a cover-up. And in a sense, to kind of whet your appetite for next week, when we get to this whole topic of free will, I don't actually think there's much point, therefore, in Christians talking about free will if we only ever use that will to turn away from the God who has made us. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say it because if we were able to choose to turn back to God, if we were able to keep God's commands and obey his law fully, Paul says that Christ died for no reason. Christ died for nothing. Take a look at Galatians 2, verse 21, printed there on your handout. Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. What the doctrine of total depravity says, ultimately, is that the only part that you and I play, the only contribution we have to our salvation, is our sin. Uh, In fact, In Romans 7, Paul will say we are slaves to sin, entrapped by our fallen nature. And that's the reason why in Ephesians 2, which I printed there on your handout, Paul will even say you and I are dead in our sins. Dead in our sins. Now for Paul to use that kind of language, that pretty much removes any hope we have of helping ourselves. Because... And just run with the image. If we're dead in our sins, well, the one thing you know for certain about dead people is that they cannot self-administer CPR. Uh, For that reason, actually, to go even further, the New Testament will consistently say that even the ability to repent, even the ability to trust and have faith in God, that must be God's gift. It can't be our own doing. And if you want to look up a couple of verses, I've printed them there for you from Acts 11 and Ephesians chapter 2. Well, at the end of last year, I went to a conference that was called here in Adelaide for a bunch of church leaders and pastors uh, to talk about evangelism. It was a conference that was put on to uh, address the declining conversion rates in the West that we're all too familiar with the rise of secularism in our society, the marginalisation of the church, the growing biblical illiteracy 
it feels as if things are getting harder and harder in Australia, harder and harder for people to turn to Christ. What I remember most about the conference is what the keynote speaker said in his opening line. Because here's what he said. The very first thing he started was by saying, evangelism is just as hard today as it has ever been because people are as spiritually dead today as they have ever been. It's true we have different challenges in the West. Uh, Ironically, somewhat, I think the church in the West looks more and more like the churches of the New Testament, outcasts in their society. But still, don't despair. Because Jesus says he will build his church. And that means there must be a way forward. So, question two, is there any hope? Well, yes, there is. Despite the bleak picture of humanity we've just painted, the wonderful news of the gospel, uh, and here admittedly is where my whole dentist analogy thing will break down, the wonderful news of the gospel is that the cost of the solution is actually borne by another. It's borne by Christ, who dies for us because he loves us. So when you think about human nature, actually Christians ought to be deeply pessimistic. We ought to be deeply pessimistic about humankind's ability to improve our world. And actually, Christians of all people ought not be devastated when we see the very worst in humankind because we have a reason to explain it. It is sin that leads us to that consequence. So as Christians, actually, I think we can be deeply honest and pessimistic about humanity, but at the same time, Christians alone, I think, can be unfailingly optimistic about the future because of God's great mercy. When we were dead in our sins, he made us alive in Christ. I've given you a quote there from John Newton. Many of you will know of John Newton, the author of that great hymn, Amazing Grace. Most of you will know that he was, before becoming a Christian, a slave trader. And I wonder if there is any fouler expression of the worst of humanity than slavery. And yet, in God's mercy, he was brought to life in Christ. Here's what Newton said on his deathbed as he reflected back over his life and what he had seen. John Newton, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great saviour. Well, a big idea, uh, some questions for us. Let me talk for a few minutes about how we might respond. Uh, The big idea, of course, today, if God treated us fairly as we deserve, no one would be saved. I want to say I acknowledge that that leaves lots of unanswered questions, and we'll come back to them next week. Questions like, well, if no one deserves to be saved, then on what basis does God choose anyone at all? But today, I just wanted to show that if no one deserves to be saved, 
then you cannot earn or demand God's mercy. You can only receive it as a gift. You cannot claim it as an entitlement or a wage for services performed. So, two practical responses then, and drawn both from the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the first of the readings that Jonathan brought to us. And you'll see a blank for you to fill in there. It's a stop and a start. Here's the stop. Stop. Stop looking down on others. Stop looking down on others. Uh, as bluntly as possible, I want to say that there is no place for pride or boasting in the Christian community. There is no place for pride or boasting in the Christian community. Uh, that's because all of us have rejected our loving Creator. All of us have chosen to live our own way. All of us are guilty, therefore. And none of us is any better than each other when compared with our Creator. That's why I called this talk, There is no unrighteous, not even one. It's a quote from Romans chapter 3. And that's, of course, the great irony of the parable that Jesus tells about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Because the Pharisee boasts about how he looks a little less bad than the tax collector when it's the tax collector who realises that the benchmark isn't other people, the benchmark is our perfect creator. In the end, 99% good is not good enough for God. Uh, Here's an illustration, perhaps to make the point that uh, I heard many years ago, and it's kind of stuck with me since, although it's from a different context. Uh, When I was in high school, I had a maths teacher who was very happy to give you half marks. Uh, You know, even if you got the answer wrong, but you showed the working, he was very happy to give you half marks. And, you know, again, I see from some of the smiles on your faces, you know exactly how this goes. And if you're a teacher, you're probably used to students trying to negotiate with you. Um, He was very happy to give you half marks on the proviso that they were always rounded down. And when you asked him, well, why, sir? Well, his logic was, it didn't matter if you were halfway across the road and the truck hit you you're still dead. The comparison is not with each other. It's with our perfect creator. So there is no place for pride in the Christian community. And yet the funny thing is that even in church, we find ourselves subtly comparing ourselves to others. Let me give you two ways in which I see this happen. The first is that... um, we can find ourselves thinking that so-and-so could never become a Christian. So-and-so could never become a Christian, partly to justify why we don't share the gospel with them. Now, I wonder what kind of person would you put in that category of someone who is beyond God's redemption? A murderer? A pedophile? An adulterer? if you've been the victim. Can you see that even by thinking that way, you've assumed that your sinfulness is somehow less bad than theirs? When it took the death of Christ to atone for our sins? I've given you a reference at the bottom of the handout there. You'll see, for further reading, I've tried to do this each week. It's a brilliant book, 
although very painful to read. You can tell what it's about from looking at the title by Jerry Bridges. It's called Respectable Sins. It's a discussion of all the sins that we so conveniently overlook, whilst sadly at times Christians can be so vocal in their demonstration against other things. There's one way in which I think, sadly, subtly, we can find ourselves trying to look down on others. Here's a different way, and um, go with me on this one. Oddly, sometimes I find myself hearing uh, a sentiment from Christians which runs along these lines. Um, I wish that I had a more dramatic conversion story, um, because if I did, then that would impress the unbelievers, you know. I wish that I could say I was a drug-dealing axe murderer who repented on death row because that would be really effective in you know, trying to witness to my, you know, my workmates or my classmates. Now, I say this, sorry, that's my phone reminding me that I need to take an injection um, after this talk finishes. Um, I guess I am... I, I think this because, well, sometimes I hear Christians who've been Christians all their life say something like this, almost apologising, I don't have a very exciting testimony. I have a boring testimony. You know, I was born in a Christian family. I was always the good kid who did what I was told. I've always known that Jesus loved me. To which I want to say, that's fantastic. I mean, hooray. But if you were dead in your sins, at some point, Jesus made you alive in God made you alive in Christ. And I think that's pretty spectacular, don't you? If you think that your testimony is boring, the risk is that you're becoming like the Pharisee. Oh, thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Or perhaps you've become like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Because you remember him? He's proof that one can be lost without ever leaving home. Of course, the great complication of all this is that I suspect if you're anything like me, when I came to church this morning, I want you to look at me like I'm the outwardly respectable Pharisee rather than the outwardly broken but inwardly justified tax collector. Well, stop looking down on others. Let me finish then. What's the other suggestion? Start by confessing your own sin today. Start by confessing your own sin today. Uh, In a moment, I'm going to lead us in a prayer of confession that we might do just that. Before I do, can I say, whatever your brokenness, well, I am so sorry if Christians have ever looked down on you for your sexuality, for your racial background, for just being different. They ought not have because all of us are broken. All of us have been involved in a cover-up. None of us is any better than any other. So can I say, whether you're here today as a younger sibling who has run away or an older sibling who never left, 
though perhaps your heart seethes with bitterness or envy. Can I say, come home? So if you came to church today like a Pharisee, heart full of pride, make sure you leave like the tax collector, repentant and justified before God. On the screen behind me is a prayer that I'm going to ask you to join me as we say together, and then after that we'll take any questions. Together. Heavenly Father, maker of all things, judge of all people, you have loved us with an everlasting love, but we have gone our own way and rejected your will for our lives. We are sorry for our sins and turned away from them, For the sake of your Son who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us, and change us. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to live for you and to please you in every way through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Well, thank you. A couple of minutes of questions? Yep, okay. Questions. Any questions you'd like to ask? If you pop your hand up. Excuse me, um, Jack will bring the microphone around. We'll see how we go. Mm, Going easy on me today, eh? Should break my foot more often. Nope, no questions today. If you'd like to chat, uh, come and talk with me afterwards. I clearly will not be going anywhere, so I'll be right there. Um, and otherwise, I look forward to seeing you again next week. Um, I'm going to ask the band at this point if they'll come up. They've very kindly prepared a song for us uh, that in many ways sums up and describes what we've heard about today. It's, a, it's an invocation, a call uh, to come to the God of grace and mercy, recognising our brokenness and trusting in his great love. Thanks very much.